Pitch to Aramis. There's a drive. Deep left center. Cubs win. They win it. Ramirez, two-run shot. Oh, baby. It just was, was following my heart. And sometimes yeah. it's not about the biggest stage or the most money or whatever. It's about what, what do you want to do? What, what makes you happy? What gives you uh, a thrill when you, when you get out of bed every day? If you had the chance to have a beer with your favorite baseball player, what would you talk about? Would you ask the same tired questions like every reporter after the game? How did you feel? What was going through your mind? Yada, yada, yada. Probably not. It's time you hear the stories that these players have never told. This is the Setup Man Podcast, where we have conversations that every fan wants to hear and the stories that every player and coach deserve to share. Let's get started. Hey, welcome into another episode of The Setup Man. You're listening to me, Kyle Stanley, and I just want to say thank you. This is a brand new podcast we started two months ago. Those of you that continue to listen and share with friends, subscribe, and leave reviews, I just want to say thank you because we're starting to see some traction, starting to see a lot of views, starting to see a lot of downloads, and that's really exciting. Again, this was a passion project that I started to just, you know, I've always been a baseball fan, always been a huge uh, fan of the game, the players that play it, and so for me to be able to connect with players, connect with teams, connect with coaches, it's a really fun thing for me. But it's even more fun when I see all of you listening and having a good time with it too. So I just want to say thank you for doing that. And for those of you that have not taken advantage yet, today is November 1st as I release this. It's the final day for our free giveaway of either a Setup Man hat. Check that out if you're watching on YouTube. Or a shirt. Both of these are two of my favorite things to wear. This is a really nice workout shirt. And the hat is just, I mean, that's that's a cool logo. Plus the, the side emblem there. Right, the setup man. It's it's pretty cool. So I'm getting a lot of great feedback about this swag, and I would love to give this away to you. But today's the last day that you can do that. So you're gonna do one of three things. If you want a free hat or shirt, you're gonna go number one and either review us on Apple or Spotify, or subscribe to us on YouTube and leave a comment. So once again, review on Apple or Spotify or subscribe to us and leave a comment on YouTube. Number two, you're gonna take a screenshot of the fact that you've done that. And then number three, you're going to email that screenshot to me at kyle at setupman.net, kyle at setupman.net. If you do that, I'm gonna go ahead and send you a free hat or a free shirt, and I might even give you one more additional step to make sure that you get both of them. Go ahead and send that to me via email. Really looking forward to giving you some free swag. Now, this is week three of four of our broadcaster series. We've had Boog Shambi on. We've had Matt Vaskersian on. This week, we have Len Casper on the show. And I really went deep into Len's story. You know, with Boog and with Matt, we talked a lot about baseball. We talked a lot about the current state of the game. Boog, we even talked about, you know, just kind of the, the whole Ronald Acuna situation. But with Len, I really felt like with what I wanted to get across with this conversation, it was important for people to know his story and who Len was at the age of 12 years old and what he did growing up and and the the type of guy that he really is. Cause he really is one of the good guys in baseball. And he got a really bad rap from a lot of Cubs fans 
back in 2021 when he left the Cubs to go to the rival White Sox. And everyone took that so personally. And so you'll see in this conversation where Len's heart was at when that did happen. And um, just really revealing, um, really, really good to know as a fan of the game that really when it comes down to the broadcasters, there's very little when it comes down to rivalries and things like that. It all has to do with what Len will be sharing with you during this conversation. Um, and then to me, like we had a lot of fun reliving some really good moments in 2016 when Mike Cubs won the World Series and then some really uh, tough moments to relive when he talked about the Marlins in 2003 because Len was with both the Marlins and the Cubs during their championships. And it was really cool to hear from a broadcaster's standpoint of what those two teams were like and what was the difference in how they won their championships and the, the clubhouse atmosphere, all those things living kind of behind the scenes as the broadcaster through the eyes of Len Casper. It's going to be a lot of fun. So let's get to it with this conversation here on the Setup Man podcast with Len Casper. All right, Len Casper, excited to see you again, brother. Uh, appreciate you being on, um, and thanks for just taking some time while you're out there in New York, man. Good to hear from you, Kyle. Uh, it was, it was uh, nice to get a note from you. Uh, yeah, it has been a while. <laughs> been a little bit, yeah. I, I had a little bit more hair and a little bit less on my, my face, too, when we last knew each other. So. <laughs> uh, well, hey, Len, um, you've been around for 22 years, three different teams, uh, you know, it, one of the things that I didn't realize until I started doing a little bit more research, you were in the Cubs booth as long as Harry Carey, which is an amazing accomplishment and a really cool uh, name to be able to be mentioned next to. Um, so for that, I just really respect what you've done in the game. But also, um, in the time I got to know you, you're a big music fan. So I want to know, like, when you're driving to the ballpark on the way to the game, What's the music of choice or band of choice that you're you're playing on on your car? Well, usually it's uh, I just kind of have a main playlist with a bunch of random songs and and bands. Um, so I kind of try to bounce around from genre to genre. It's more about if it's a good song, it's a good song. So I could go from uh, you know Joe Walsh to uh, you know some post punk band to uh, you know, some jazz song or whatever. And I kind of like the surprise of hearing, it's like my own radio station, I guess. I would love to just be on the way to the ballpark and look over and see you rocking out in your car. <laughs> uh, well, it hey, does Len, happen. Uh, it, it does happen, is that what you said? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Len, I want to go back to, you know, 10-year-old Len Casper. And was was he sitting in front of the TV calling games like he was going to when when he became uh, an adult or were were you in baseball like what was what was life like at home what was your passion when did your passion for baseball come about I just want to kind of go back to when you were a kid there yeah I I, I was into baseball from a, a pretty early age and you know when I kind of started I would have been probably 10 or 11 when we got cable um, when I really got into it was when we got WGN and, and TBS, uh, the growing up in Michigan, the Tigers were, were, were the home team, but they only had probably 50, 60 games on television. So I listened to a lot of radio, uh, mm -hmm. growing up, Ernie Harwell and Paul Carey were the voices of the Tigers on radio. 
and you know you had the game of the week but it was really special to to know that there was a, a game every day uh with the braves or the cubs and so i ended up watching a, a, a lot of that and then you know i played baseball through high school i knew that i wasn't going to play beyond that and i just thought at a pretty early age you know ernie has a really good cool job I, that that sounds like that'd be a great way to to be around baseball and and you know i would say i don't remember how old i was but it was probably in that 11 to 12 year old period where i i kind of thought I'd, I'd love to be a big league broadcaster uh so it, it started early and it never really wavered i'm really fortunate in that regard um I got a job when I was 17. I was a junior in high school at a little radio station uh, nearby. And it was a satellite oldie station. So it was a lot of just what they call running the board, hitting the commercials, that sort of thing. And then got a little on-air experience as time moved along. Um, and that was really helpful to me to kind of, quote, be in the business before I ever started college. And uh, I went to Marquette University in Milwaukee and I worked on student radio there. And so, you know, I was kind of a little ahead of the curve a little bit in that I got a lot of good experience early. And probably the biggest break I got was my freshman year. Uh, I got an internship in the public relations department with the Milwaukee Bucks. I was actually mm. a PR major. I got a lot of broadcasting experience outside the class, but I thought the PR thing would fit really nicely. And so this is 1989, um, 18 years old. And this is still, you know, what I would call for me, the heyday of the NBA with, you know, Magic and Larry Bird and Sidney yeah. Moncrief and Isaiah Thomas and Michael Jordan and um, it, it, some huge stars. So to be that young and to be around these big NBA stars oh, yeah. was a real eye opener for me. Yeah. So that was kind of a How Kickstarter. How close were you actually with the players? Were you kind of more of an intern behind the scenes or did you actually get to interview players and all that good stuff before the games? Well, we would get quotes after the games. Uh, wow. Usually it was, a, I think, a coach and two players. Um, you know, I, I didn't really ask a lot of questions. I just kind of was in the scrum and then I would, you know, write down what they said and then we would, would type up the quotes. Um, and then I sat right on the court uh, for all the games, which was pretty incredible. Yeah, it was fun. That's cool. At that point, did you kind of feel like, well, maybe basketball is where I'm going, or were you still thinking I want to get back to baseball? Yeah, no, baseball was was always always there for me, even if I wasn't doing uh, that specifically at the time. And that actually lasted for a long time. When I got out of college, I probably sent – a tape and a resume to every single and double a team uh, in baseball. And I got a lot of rejection letters and in a lot of cases, I didn't hear it back uh, from teams at all. And that's what kind of forced me to get into radio in Milwaukee uh, doing kind of various things. I did sports anchoring and a talk show and, and Packers pre and post game uh, but being in Milwaukee helped me get out to the ballpark a lot. And that's when I became friends with a lot of people with the Brewers. And eventually that led to me getting an opportunity to fill in uh, on television play-by-play -play and a little radio. Uh, and 
having that big league experience is, is, is why I'm here today. Cause if I hadn't had that opportunity and made all those connections at that time, uh, I wouldn't have had a chance to do it because I never really did minor league games. I mean, I just did a very handful, small handful of games in Beloit. Uh, Brett Dolan was the, uh, the voice of the, the Beloit snappers at the time. And yep. I just called him and said, Hey, if I take a free weekend or two and come down and just get some tape basically. And he said, yeah, absolutely. He, he had no reason to say yes, but he, he was very gracious. And, um, you know, I, I'm very grateful to this day that he allowed me to do that. And again, it was just a, just a small handful of innings I did, but I had enough tape to give to the brewers that they were like, okay, we, we hear potential here. Yeah. Uh, and, and that gave me that opportunity. And how, how much longer after that were you hired by the Marlins? And did you realize that if you wanted to be in a full-time role for this, that it was going to be with a different team or were you still trying to figure out if you could do that and stay in Milwaukee? Well, Matt left after the old one season to go to San Diego and mm -hmm. I was kind of immediately a finalist for the job. Um, but what I've found is a lot of times when you're in the position of being the fill-in, um, you get pigeonholed as kind of the fill-in mm -hmm. and that's fine. I, you know, I, I, I have no problem with that. And I do think that there are times when you have to maybe leave to come back. Uh, and so Darren Sutton and I were the finalists and, uh, I was told it was an agonizing decision and they, they picked Darren and he and I became really good friends and, uh, He's like, hey, you should apply for my old job, which was radio in Anaheim. Mm. Both radio guys had left. Mar Mario and Pemba left to go to Detroit. And Darren left to go to Milwaukee. So uh, I, I applied for the radio job there, and I was a finalist for that. Uh, didn't get it. And that was the moment where I was like, I'm not sure this is going to happen because I was 30... I think I, yeah, I just turned 31 and that's the moment where I'm like, I have a lot of experience and I just kind of felt like I was really close. Um, and then Dave O'Brien, who is the TV voice of the Marlins left to go to ESPN. This was just after the Marlins were sold. John Henry sold the Marlins, bought the Red Sox. Jeffrey Loria sold the Expos to MLB and bought the Marlins. Uh, so there was a lot of change at that time, and I ended up getting the job after spring training had started, uh, which I think was was probably uh, fairly fortunate timing in that I wasn't competing against full-time radio announcers. It was, yeah. you know, everybody already was working for that next year, so I think it did limit the pool. Uh, so that's how I got the Marlins job, and that was my first full-time gig in 2002. Was that just the biggest celebration slash sigh of relief to say, I, I did it. I got that full-time job. Oh yeah. No, it was great. And I got the job officially on a Wednesday and I had to be down at uh, Melbourne, Florida on a Saturday. And I ended up, my wife and son basically stayed because my son was not, he wasn't even one yet. So it was just, Hey, get down to, Miami figure out all your stuff we'll come and visit but you know so we rented a place the first summer and we ended up buying a house uh we moved in right after that season but that that was a whirlwind season to say the least when you moved over to the Cubs 
uh, compare that interview process to what you went through with the Marlins. Was it similar? Did you have someone reach out to you or was, were you in a long line of uh, people trying to get that job? It was as dissimilar as it could get. Uh, there were yeah. no resumes involved. Uh, I made one phone call and basically was told that they weren't going to call me. Uh, but I, they, they did know who I was and, you know, I was immediately kind of on their, their short list. Uh, essentially the deal there was just come up, have a few meetings, talk baseball, talk philosophy, go out to dinner. And that was kind of it. Um, Matt Vaskersian was up for the job. Dave O'Brien was up for the job. So it really had come full circle. And I remember talking to both guys during the process and, and I told, I told the Cubs and WGN, you know, I know who you're talking to and whoever you hire, you know, they're going to be awesome. And I kind of figured I was third on the list because both had a lot more experience. Well, Dave had either a year or two left on his ESPN deal and they were not going to let him out of it. Mm. And Matt had, I think two years left on his Padres contract. And I think they were essentially, I don't know all the details and it doesn't matter, but I think they were essentially saying, you know, if you want Matt, you're going to have to give us some sort of compensation. And so, you know, I don't think the Cubs and WGN were willing to do that. So I wouldn't say I got the job by default, uh, but I, I definitely felt like there were some things that kind of lined up perfectly. And then, you know, Matt ends up at MLB network. Eventually uh, Dave ends up the voice of the Red Sox, his hometown team. And we all to this day kind of laugh about how it, it really did work out perfectly for everybody. Um, well, it, it almost never does, but it, but it did in that case. Oh yeah. Well, I'm a big believer. Everything happens for a reason, but I, I specifically remember a conversation back in it was either 08 or 09 when I was working with the Padres and you were coming to town. I was talking to Matt about how you and I were going to get dinner and his words were, one of the nicest guys in the game and has the best job in baseball. So <laughs> I know now knowing that Matt was one of the finalists, uh, you know, that, that says a lot about um, just how much he thinks of you too. Um, and, and that's, that's really cool. So um, I, I need to know though, like as soon as you get into that, that seat, you're the first full-time play-by-play for TV for the Cubs um, not named Carrie, right? It was Harry Carey and then it goes Chip Carey and then, and then you, and was, was that something that was very prevalent for you? Were, were people talking about that? Did you feel that pressure or were you just going in like a, like another job and doing your thing? Oh, there was pressure, but you know, I just, I had to write it out. It was every day. And, and, you know, I got there and just said to myself, be, be you and do your thing. And you know, Chicago is, is a very provincial loyal sports town, uh, which means that it can be very difficult on, on people who come from yeah. uh, elsewhere. And the advantage and disadvantage I had was that I was not known at all in, in Chicago. Uh, the, the, the benefit of it was it was a blank slate and I could kind of start from, from day one. And sometimes when you come in and you're known from at the outside, people have preconceived ideas 
of, of, of who you are. Right. Um, but the downside was, you know, there was definitely a sense of who, who the, who the heck is this guy? Uh, but again, I had a great partner in Bob Brenly and, yeah. you know, you just, when you do this every day and you stick to your philosophy and you tweak it as you need to, um, you know, you just hope that if you do good work, eventually people, uh, grow to like it. And, um, you know, what, I, I can't really speak to, to how I was perceived or how I am perceived. It's just based on what people tell you. But, you know, I just think when you do it for a certain amount of time, there is this sense of comfort that they hear a voice that is recognizable to them. So I've got one last question before I kind of go into a little bit more of on the field stuff and, and some of your experiences with players and coaches um, and stories along the way. Um, there's a lot of articles. There's a lot of people uh, that have, that have asked you this question, but I want to go a little bit deeper. Um, and I want to, first of all, start with your decision to go from TV with the Cubs to go to play by play with the white Sox. Um, g- give us just, you know, a little bit of the, the history. And you mentioned some Ernie Harwell stuff there with you wanting to, to kind of emulate him. Um, and he was radio. So I know a lot of that has to do with it, but I want to hear from, from your, your mouth. What, what was the biggest, maybe two or three reasons that you made that decision? Yeah, just again, the timing was such, it was during the pandemic, uh, yeah. Ed Farmer, who was great to me, had passed away in April and uh, that next off season, you know, they were going to, uh, you know, hire a new radio voice. And uh, I had just turned 50. Uh, my goal when I was 12 was to be the radio voice of a team. Uh, I had done 20 years of television. My, uh, my son was close to getting out of college. Uh, my parents are not getting any younger. They're still in Michigan. I've never worked, uh, for an American league team. Uh, I've never been the lead announcer for a playoff game. And, uh, you know, for people who don't know when you're doing local television, you get aced out of all the postseason. You don't get to yeah. call any, uh, games. Uh, so that, that mattered a lot. Um, and I just thought, you know, the, the two choices I have at this time in my life, I could keep this amazing job. Um, but I started to think of all the boxes I had checked with the Cubs. And the main one was I got to, to, to see a world series championship in 2016. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that I would have done beyond would have been essentially repeating the things that I'd already done as great as they were. Um, but I, it was more of taking an inventory of the things that I hadn't yet experienced in this sport. And I wouldn't have done it in any other city because, you know, contemplating the idea of moving across town, it just was, we didn't have to leave. We didn't, we didn't have to, we didn't have to move. We could literally stay yeah. in the same house. So that's kind of how it all came about. And when, you know, the question came up of why would you do that? I, I guess my response is well, why, why not? Why, why wouldn't I? And when it all came together very quickly, um, I got a, I got a ton of responses from very prominent broadcasters, national big names and people who uh, also in baseball, who all said how much they appreciated the fact that I kind of stuck to my guns and, and, and went with my heart and uh, didn't just kind of do the thing that everyone assumed I would continue to do. And 
you know, the Cubs were great about it. The White Sox obviously were, have been awesome. Um, but it just was, was following my heart. And sometimes yeah. it's not about the biggest stage or the most money or whatever. It's about what, what do you want to do? What, what makes you happy? What gives you uh, a thrill when you, when you get out of bed every day? And so I think at that time in my life, it just was the right, it was the right thing. That was my gut. And the first year with the White Sox, I got to call four playoff games, uh, something I had never been able to do before. Um, people think I left to go to the White Sox because they were better than the Cubs at the time. It had nothing to do with it. Sure. If the White Sox had been a 110 loss team that year, I still would have made that move. It, 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 it's more about the job itself than it is anything else. And, uh, you know, I, I hope I get a chance to do a lot more uh, playoffs down the road, but I, I absolutely adore doing radio and uh, it, it, it always felt right. And to this yeah. day, I, I have no regrets about it. Man, I, I love hearing that, that you're following your heart too, because, um, I'm a big, I mean, it's the whole reason I started this podcast. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not making money off of this, at least not at the moment. And the goal is not to make money off of it. The goal is just to follow a passion and to see where this goes, who I can meet along the way. And I don't think enough people are doing that these days. I think we, we get in this nine to five mode and, and we get around a lot of, the same types of people, the same atmosphere, and we just kind of get stuck. And so to see you think outside the box and say, you know what, this, this is where I wanted to be when I was a kid. And, and now I'm, I've, I've checked the boxes with the Cubs, with the Marlins, with the Brewers, and now I want to follow my heart and my passion. That's just something that I uh, really resonate with and, and just commend you for. Well, I appreciate it. You know, um, I guess in some ways it could have been scary. It didn't feel that way to me. And I felt very comfortable from day one. And that's where I give the White Sox and everybody I've, I've worked with over there a lot of credit for welcoming me in with open arms. Um, but, but I do, I do think that you're, you know, they have tracking right in, in school where you kind of, you end up in a, in a, in a certain path and a certain track and you kind of never veer out of that. And I, I just, you know, I don't, I didn't want, down the road 20 years to go, you know, I had an opportunity to do something different and I didn't do it. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it's okay for it to be a little scary or feel challenging or feel like, you know, other people aren't going to understand, or, you know, I might lose Twitter followers or whatever, like <laughs> at the end of the day, none of that really matters at all. Yeah. You know, this is, this is your life, your career, and you only have one shot at a certain age to do these things. And if you, if you do the inventory and you decide in the end not to do it, I think that's okay too. But I think just going through the process of, Hey, this would be interesting. You know um, I, I think it's a very healthy thing. My buddy calls it the rocking chair test. If you're picturing yourself at 90 years old and in, in a home talking to a nurse, are you going to be talking about the war stories of, man, I wish I would have done this or wish I had done that. Or are you going to be bragging about all the the risks that you took and the things that you followed for your passions uh, at the end of your life? And, and you're, you're the latter, which is, is awesome, man. Um, <laughs> all right, let's, let's transition a little bit here. Well, actually, no, I, I do have one other question about that. You said in the beginning that, fans, especially Cubs fans were like, Oh, you went to the white Sox because they're better. And that had nothing to do with it. Now what happens, especially you're in the same town, what happens when you're in Chicago and a Cubs fan bumps into you? What are they saying now? Well, for the most part, 
you know, it's, Hey, we really miss you. And I, that, yeah. that just, it makes me feel really good. And, um, you know, I've, I've had some people say, you know, ah, I'm still mad at you for leaving or whatever, but I take that as a compliment. Um, no, everybody's been really nice about it. Uh, I did hear from Michael Kay and, and Gary Cohn separately, uh, the voices of the Yankees and the Mets, uh, respectively. And they said, you know, New York, you could never do that. You know, Mets fans hate me or Yankees fans hate me. Uh, but for whatever reason, Chicago is a little different in that regard. Um, so yeah, there are probably some Cubs fans who, and, and, and believe me, I've heard, you know, on Twitter, mostly, you know, you trader and all that stuff, but sure. I, I think it's just an emotional reaction and, you know, I don't, I don't let that bother me at all. Yeah. Well, we just had Ted Lilly on the, the show too. And, and when I asked him, where was his favorite stadium to play at? He said, Wrigley, when I asked him why. He said, it's just the fans. He said, it's got, they've got that Midwest, just making you feel at home kind of feel. And they know if you're doing your best and putting in effort, then they're going to support you over the results. And I think that goes into the broadcast booth too. They know that if you're following your passion and you're not doing it to, to hurt Cubs fans, but doing it for yourself, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more forgiving people. And I'm in that, that boat. I miss you, man. So I, but I love Boog. Boog's fun to listen to as well. And I know you guys are good friends too. Um, let's move over to, to the field. Uh, you were a part of the Marlins when they won the world series in 03. Um, and part of the Cubs when they won it in 16. And I know you didn't get to call the games, like you said, because you were on local TV at the time, but I want to just know from a, in the dugout and in the the day-to-day with those teams what was that like just from like taking yourself out of a broadcast perspective but putting yourself into more of a fan's shoes of being up and close and personal with those teams um a what was what was that like to be able to be around just championship teams and b what was the difference that you saw in both of those teams and how they won their championships well i think the thread uh is how difficult it is to win it all. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Cubs were basically wire to wire. And yet in all three postseason series, you know, they were teetering a little bit. They won game four in San Francisco, but they were down five to two in the ninth inning and came back to win. If they don't come back, they have to head back to Chicago and face Johnny Cueto, who had pitched really well against them, I think, in game one. Um, and then in the Dodgers series, back-to-back losses, they're in LA, the offense is not scoring runs. They're down two games to one. And then, uh, I want to say Russell and Rizzo hit big home runs and that kind of propelled them to win that series. And then they're down three games to one in the world series against uh, a Cleveland team that was kind of on fumes pitching wise. And, you know, Cleveland had to kind of win game five. It felt like. Uh, in order to win that series. Um, in the Marlins case, they got off to a terrible start. I want to say 16 and 22, and then maybe 19 and 29. They fired their manager in May and brought in Jack McKeon. Uh, and that felt like it just was such a shocking move. Uh, along those lines... Miguel Cabrera and Dontrell Willis around that time came up from the minor leagues. So it just kind of felt like everything all of a sudden changed and, you know, they, they ended up a wild card team. 
great players. You look back now and, you know, at the time they felt like they were, they came out of nowhere, but I mentioned some of the players uh, earlier, but Pudge Rodriguez was there that year, hall of famer infield of Derek Lee, Luis Castillo, Alex Gonzalez, Mike Lowell, uh, the pitching staff, incredible. AJ Burnett was actually injured. He had Tommy John surgery, but you had Beckett and Penny and Willis and Carl Pavano. I mean, and the list goes on and on. And then they acquired Uga Thurbina to, to help close games. Uh, they went into the postseason as the underdog in every series. Uh, I think the Giants were a 100 team, a 100 win team, uh, beat them uh, three games to one. And you remember uh, Jeff Conine made the big throw and Pudge Rodriguez, the tag at home plate yeah. to end the game. Uh, and then the, the crazy Cubs series, I remember going to the ballpark for game five, thinking that it's probably over and, uh, it wasn't, you know, it, it, it was, don't bring up the pain, Len. <laughs> well, you know, it was one of those things where I think everybody assumed it was over. Yeah. Uh, and then game six, you know, I, I went into the Cubs radio booth and congratulated those guys because it was three, nothing going into the eight. Yeah. And everybody agreed it was over. And then it wasn't. Yeah. Um, and then the World Series against the Yankees, the first batter of the series, Juan Pierre, laid down a perfect bunt against David Wells for a base hit. And that kind of set the entire tone. Uh, Miguel Cabrera got buzzed up and in by Roger Clemens. And then later in the at-bat, hit an opposite field home run. So it was just... I wouldn't say it was the little team that could, but it was definitely the team that everybody assumed would crumble at some point and never did. And yeah. uh, when you're in the middle of that, it is really, really cool. It, uh, that, that was, that was a really fun uh, month of October. I probably slept for two straight weeks after it because it is exhausting. I think I slept for three weeks after the Cubs run uh, because of the emotions involved there. Yeah. Um, but the different, the, the similarities were when you're in the middle of it, the day-to-day -day team stuff on the field is almost exactly the same. It's huge. And also not little, but it's huge and it's familiar no matter what team you're with. The biggest difference was the reaction and how much it meant to so many people when the Cubs sure. won. Sure. That that's yeah. the biggest difference is the parade. You know, you're on the parade route and there are upwards of 5 million people in downtown Chicago. That's when it really hits you because you've been so, you know, in the middle of it, you just, you widen the lens a little bit and you go, Oh my gosh, yeah, this is incredible. So that's when it kind of overwhelms you a little bit. And I think the players would say the same thing. So a couple of questions about the Marlins team there in 03, you mentioned Jack McKeon um, when he came in, were how much did you know about him? And then, of course, he, there was a lot of antics from, from I think one of one of the things in my mind is remembering him smoking a cigar in the dugout. <laughs> so, like, what what was it like being around uh, an old school manager? And how much did you know about him coming in? Oh, it was great. I mean, I knew I knew his history, obviously. And um, he was a character, you know, he loved to yeah. he loved to, to argue and you know, friendly arguments and stuff. And, uh, you know, he would mispronounce names or forget the names of his players. But, uh, <laughs> you know, my, my favorite Jack story is just sitting in his office before game six of the World Series. 
and he's got Josh Beckett on short rest, you know, Josh was probably 23 at the time, 22, mm-hmm. maybe. And I said, well, you know, did you consider saving him for game seven? And he said, blank game seven, we're going to win tonight. Nice. You know, I mean, he, he wasn't afraid and, you know, Beckett pitched the game of his life. Uh, I, I do think when you get into that postseason setting, you do need to have a manager who's not afraid. You know, you don't, you don't necessarily always have to do the by the book stuff. And that wasn't Jack at all. And I think that, uh, I think the Marlins benefited greatly from that kind of fly by the seat of your pants attitude that he had uh, once they got into the big moments. It's like, why can't we win? Of course we can win. I think that really worked. Now you also got to see Miguel Cabrera come up that year um, and all the hype around him. Obviously now he's going to be a hall of famer um, and that hype came to fruition, but uh, being around a new ball player like that. And obviously you got to see a lot of new ball players with the Cubs as well. With that whole 2012 to 2015 string of, of guys, but compare like, you know, seeing the Rizzo's and the Schwarber's and the Baez's and the Bryant's coming up to Miguel Cabrera coming up. I want to know, like, just was there something different about the way that this kid carried himself that made you say, like, this guy is going to be something special? Or was there still a lot of question marks for you around him? It was the former. Yeah. Uh, to be as young as he was, I mean, he was 20, I think. He was already maybe the best hitter on the team. I mean, yeah, there was some stuff that he had to he had to tighten up, but the the opposite field power, the approach, the comfort at the plate, he was not intimidated by anything or anyone. Um, you know, I would make the Chris Bryant comp, but you know, Chris was, you know, had played college ball and he was probably 24, 23, mm-hmm. 24 when he came up and was the rookie of the year, uh, with a lot of hype for sure. Um, but you got to remember Miguel Cabrera, and I talked to him about this earlier this year was the last year I was on the field with him and uh, his home ballpark was pro player stadium and then Comerica park. And I'm like, if you played half your games at Fenway or Chicago or any, you'd have 700 home runs instead of 500, whatever he has. And he kind of laughed and said, yeah, I mean, the fact that he's had over 500 home runs and played half his games in these really cavernous pitchers parks is is just it's just remarkable obviously an over 300 hitter and all that stuff but man oh man um you know i if we were having this interview 20 years ago and you said is he is he going to be a hall of famer i i I might have wavered so i don't want to sit here and say that i knew at the time but i knew he was going to be really good and you remember he he was a shortstop originally yeah uh came to the big leagues as a third baseman played some left field and then eventually kind of settled in at first base and obviously DH with the Tigers. But um, what a what a special player. There's no question. He, he's 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 one of those guys I, I'm very fortunate to have seen at that time. And um, now I get to see uh, him kind of come full circle in his retirement year. And uh, yeah. he, uh, he it's always a big smile when I see him. And uh, that makes me feel good. That's cool. Any. Miguel Cabrera stories, especially when you were with the Marlins, stand out? Well, I think I mentioned the two. Well, his debut, he hit a game-ending home run and extras off Al Levine. First career home run, straightaway center. Probably hit it over, you know, 460 feet. And it was like, 
come on. <laughs> that was that was yeah, absolutely ridiculous. And then the the World Series moment where Clemens backed him away. And if you watch the video, Cabrera kind of gave him a look like, okay, all right. Yeah. That's how it's gonna right. be. And then he hit a home run. I mean, wow. <laughs> I love it. The confidence. Um, yeah, it is. Amazing. Kind of some similar questions with the Cubs. You talked about character with Jack McKeon. I mean, Joe Madden, uh, you know, I just look back at that 2015, 2016, when they were really coming up and, and Joe comes on the team and all the antics in spring training. And there just was this like feeling of this is, this is different. And there was a lot more expectations to me on the Cubs versus the Marlins comparing the world series years. But what was it like, being a broadcaster and interviewing and being around Joe Madden and all the things that he had going on with the Cubs. Incredible. Uh, we're friends for life. Nice. Probably 75% of the conversations were non-baseball, you know, Sunday mornings he'd have XM on and there'd be the seventies channel. And he would talk about, you know, when this song came out, this is what I was doing or whatever. And um, so we, yeah, we bonded on a lot of different things and, you know, the thing I really appreciate about Joe is that he we go down any road like you could ask him anything and it could be the dumbest question in your mind that you could ever think of. And he, he would not he would not make you think it was a dumb question. Um, I do remember in Cleveland. It was either game six or seven. It might have been seven. We're getting off the team bus in the tunnel and there are tons of cameras there kind of recording the, the Cubs doing the walk off the bus or whatever. And I'm walking right next to him and we're not talking about baseball. We're just talking about, again, random stuff, music, you know, some article I read about who knows what. Seven, yeah. And that, and you know, it's like, it's like game seven of the world series. And he's just like, yeah. So anyway, I saw this cool article on uh, the Rolling Stones, you know, uh, that that's Joe. <laughs> he treated every day. Like it was the same, whether it was spring training, regular season, postseason, just show up, have fun, go kick ass. I love it. The The Cubs, unlike the the Marlins, had so much young talent that had come up and was still really new when they won the World Series. Um, we just talked about Cabrera, but all of these guys that came up from Rizzo to Baez to Schwarber to Bryant and Hendricks and, and some of these guys that just all this hype was around. Who stands out to you or maybe – even a, a better question that I have is which guy has left le the biggest lasting impression on you? Hmm. You know, Hendricks always has a soft spot, you know, for me, just, he kind of reminded me of Greg Maddox and I, yeah. Maddox was a cub. He came back and was a cub. Um, Kyle's just everything about him. I love on and off the field. Um, Rizzo and Bryant are probably the two that had the biggest impact. Although, you know, Baez, you know, Javi, I felt like he saved the best for the biggest moments. Oh, yeah. For sure. Um, so that's the core, right? Schwarber's great. Um, but Rizzo kind of felt like if you had to pick a leader of that team, it was it was Anthony. And uh, I got to know Anthony and Chris Bryant uh, really well. And um, – you know, the thing I love about Chris is that he reminds me of Derek Lee a lot and that mm. you'd ask him a question, you get a very literal answer. And sometimes the answer is, I don't know. And, and I think we had him on a post game after a big win and 
whatever the question was, he said, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure. And I told him after that, I said, that's one of the best answers I've ever heard on the air. And he's like, why? I said, because everybody kind of fakes an answer just to kind of sound smart. And I just love that you're so comfortable in your own skin that you can just be like, yeah, I'm not really sure. And, and Derek was just exactly the same. Um, and sometimes you had to pull, pull it out of them, but I, yeah. I always liked that if it's not something they had thought of before, they would say, yeah, I never thought about it before. <laughs> Great. Well, let's talk about it then. You know, that, that sort I of love thing. That. Just a genuine answer. That's, that's yes. good. What about Rizzo? You got to have a Rizzo story for us. Just, I mean, I guess the thing that stands out is his family, you know, and, and same for KB, but um, Anthony's parents, uh, John and, and, and Lori, they, they would be at the park all the time. I re actually ran into his dad uh, earlier this season when we were here to play the Yankees and uh, he, he was staying at, at our hotel and uh, just salt of the earth, uh, really nice people. Um, his brother as well. You know, I got to meet uh, Anthony's fiance at the time, now his wife. And so, you know, they just were around all the time. And so it's, it's when you get on that level where you get to know their, their parents, you kind of feel like you get a little insight into to who the player is. Uh, Kyle Hendricks' father, John, uh, I've gotten to know pretty well and, um, nice. you know, former golf pro, the whole deal. And, you know, I would see him walking out of the park after Kyle performance and we'd, we'd be talking about the game and, and that sort of thing. So that was a group where you did, get to see a lot of the parents just because they, as you say, they were, they were young and just kind of coming up and everybody wanted to be around the Cubs thing. Uh, so I, I think that's kind of the coolest part for me is to, is to get to know the people most important to them, which is like not it. always the case. All right. Before we get to our lightning round, I asked Ted Lilly a question that I'm also going to ask to Ryan Dempster. And I want to ask to you as well. Uh, Ted gave me a hilarious Lupinella story. Um, what's your best or favorite or funniest Lou Pinella story in your time with him? Where do I start? <laughs> I so many, I'm sure. <laughs> oh my gosh. Which is one that comes to mind. As soon as I ask that question, the first one that comes to mind. Well, just, you know, he loved and hate, he hated and loved and hated and loved every player on the team. Like Mark DeRosa became his favorite player, but like Dero and I still probably laugh about it, you know if he had an 0 for 4 or whatever, it was, you know, ah, we got to get a new second baseman. And then, you know, three days later, it's like, you know, he's the best player on the team. He just, he kind of rode the emotional roller coaster. And I think that those guys all kind of felt that, but appreciated him for being as passionate as he was. And, and the other thing is he was just such a sensitive, sweet guy. Most people saw the bluster and the ejections and the anger. The flip side of that is he would cry uh, you know, in a sentimental way on a dime. Uh, he was generous, uh, very kind. So, you know, you kind of got the whole gamut of emotions with Lou. And uh, I, I, I always appreciated that about him, but he was an open book, man. I mean, he would, he would tell me stuff and, and the other broadcasters about things they were going to do before they happen. You know, we're going to put this guy in the bullpen or this guy's going to start. We haven't told him yet. Don't say anything. And like, there are times where you're like, you know, I don't want to know this information. I'm going to run into this yeah. guy in 10 minutes, you know, but, but he, <laughs> he, he was, he, he was trusting. And I, I, Hey, doing what I do for a living. The fact that the manager trusts you with information that he's not going to tell other people. Pretty cool. 
Well, you said he loved and hated the players from a fan perspective. He seemed to love and hate the media as well. Was there any moment that you were kind of in that same Mark DeRosa shoes of like one day he loved you and then the next day he's yelling at you or someone no. uh, from the media? No, I mean, he would yell, but to, he would kind of vent to us, right? Okay. It was never, it was never like, no, I don't. No, I never had a bad moment with Lou. Not one. That's great. You know, the other thing for me is Ron Sano would do the Lou Pinella show and I would sit in there with those guys and to hear Ronnie and Lou just reminisce about all the old days. Oh, that had to be fun. Yeah, that, that should have been a podcast before podcasts. Oh, yeah. I love it. All right, Len, it is time for our 27th out. It's our rapid fire segment. Going to ask you some questions. Quickest answer that comes to your mind. You ready to rock? Let's do it. All right. Name one pregame ritual that you have before all of your broadcasts. Uh, I feel like I have to have all the clips, like the media stories on each team and kind of the news of the day. I have to have all of that done before I get to the ballpark. I don't want to spend any time at the ballpark feeling like I'm catching up on the main stuff that happened in the previous 24 hours. Obviously when you get to the park, Things happen organically that you have to adjust to, but you'd never ever want to feel like you're starting the day over when you get to the park. Awesome. What's your favorite, or who's your favorite player of all time? This is a really hard one, but uh, I'll go with Derek Lee. Uh, he was a Marlin and then a Cub, so I was with him in two different spots. He and Ryan Dempster are probably one and two. Great. What about your favorite player now? That's it. Boy, that's a that's a tough one. Liam Hendricks. Okay. Yeah, especially with everything he's gone through. That's that's a great story. Yep. Awesome guy. Uh, awesome. Favorite coach to interview over the years? <laughs> Joe Madden. Any specific yeah. reason why? Just he knew how to do it, and he could go in a million different directions. And uh, he wouldn't give you the pat answer. He'd give you some sort of answer that made you go, oh, wow, okay, I hadn't thought of it that way. Favorite stadium to visit? Yeah, I'm going to go with uh, non-home parks uh, yep. that I've worked in. Uh, but I will go – it's a tie between Dodger Stadium and Oracle Park in San Francisco. I love Oracle. We live about three hours away. We go to games all the time. Um, great. Was there – you mentioned WGN. You mentioned TBS. You mentioned being able to turn on TV. But was there a person growing up – that you knew that had an influence on you to start your love for baseball? My dad probably, you know, just, he was a big sports fan and would always watch the games uh, with me. Um, so yeah, it was him for sure. If a movie was going to be made about you, who would you like <laughs> to play your character? Oh gosh. Uh, how about Eric Stoltz? Let's just kind of go. Go in that direction. I don't know. Okay, I know that name. I got to look. Who, who's he? What, what he's he been in a million things. Uh, probably the one you oh, might yeah. know is uh, Pulp Fiction. He played the crazy drug dealer. I just think he, I guess he kind of generally looks the part. And uh, I think he's a good actor. Okay. <laughs> Last question on our lightning round here for the 27th out. If you could go back to your 12-year-old self, what would you tell 12-year-old Len? Yeah, another good question. I think um, 
I don't, I don't, you know, on a career level, I'm not sure I would say anything because I do think everything had to happen for a reason, but maybe try to have a little more fun along the way. I think I was pretty singularly focused on, you know, kind of that getting ahead, getting ahead, getting ahead. And maybe there were moments um, as a kid or as a college student or even beyond that where, um, you know, I kind of was grinding to the point where I maybe should have stepped back and enjoyed it a little more. But um, it's kind of the opposite maybe of what a lot of people would say is like, hey, you should have focused more on your work and, instead of having yeah. so much fun. But there's probably a balance in there that I, I probably should have struck a little bit better. But again, that's okay. It got me to here um, in one piece, so to speak. Awesome. That's it for our 27th out rapid fire segment, but I am going to ask our last question, which we call our final pitch. Um, it's it, you know, in writing down this question, Len, I kind of was like, man, that sounds general, but I feel like it fits you because you do follow your passions. You do follow your heart. And so what is your heart telling you about the legacy or the thumbprint that you want to leave on this game from a broadcaster's perspective? It sounds trite, but I, I, you know, I, of course I care about people's, you know, and how they view my, my work. And I would hope that they would say, yeah, yeah, that guy was pretty good. You know, I, I, I don't have any visions of grandeur beyond that, but I just hope that more of the internal and slightly external side of it and people I meet or people I work with or are acquaintances with that they say, yeah, Hey, what a good guy, you know, like, um, that, that matters more to me than, than, than the other stuff. It really does. You know, at the end of the day, the lasting impact that this game and this job has had on me is all the great people I've met. Uh, so that's kind of how I view it. And if I end up being one of those people for somebody else, uh, then, then I think I've done, uh, I've done, I've done my job. Awesome. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because like I told you, you've been a huge influence on my love for baseball, my love for, uh, especially the media side and, and uh, just appreciate everything you've done for the game. And uh, as I said already, we miss you in the Cubs booth, but uh, just very happy for everything that you've done in your career. And thanks so much for jumping on today and talking to our audience. You got it, Kyle. And I'm, uh, I'm really happy you reached out and uh, so happy to see that uh, you've got a, a family and you look great. And uh, you know, this, just the whole look of this is, is really cool. I hope, uh, I hope it's really successful. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lynn. You got it. All right. Next week is week four and the final week of our broadcaster series with Chip Carey, the guy that I listened to growing up when I first became a Cubs fan. I mean, can you still just hear it now? Swung on and belted and here comes the hook, right? Sammy Sosa and Carey Wood just having historic seasons and Chip Carey is the voice of that in the background. He's the grandson of Harry Carey. So, you know, very famous bloodline, but there's a really surprising story about him and his grandfather that I didn't even know until we had this conversation. So we're going to talk about that. Don't want to miss that. But also we're going to talk about why the Cardinals just stunk this year, right? First time that Chip got to work with the Cardinals and this, this historic trend of winning for them for over a century and had one of their worst years and seemed like a hundred years. So we're going to talk about all of that on the next week. Again, it's the final week of our broadcaster series. Please go subscribe, review, and share with three baseball friends. And again, if you follow those three steps, you'll get a free hat or free shirt if you're doing this by November 1st. 
Well, Setup Nation, that's going to do it for me. I'm going to go put my arm on ice. We'll see you next time.